So we're between series tonight. We just wrapped up our survey through the Fruit of the Spirit, which we did in June and July. And next week, we delve into a series on the mysterious and confusing and painful and also beautiful Book of Job, which um, (laughs) I'm both very excited about and very intimidated by at the same time. You'll hear more about that next week. Um, But for tonight, I wasn't really sure what to talk about. And when that happens, I like to look back through old talks that I've liked that I've given in over the years. Um, And I came across one, I think maybe a more appropriate for our current cultural moment than when I first gave it a few years ago. It's a talk all about power. Power, uh, particularly its use and abuse, is an ongoing topic in our culture right now. Postmodernism, structuralism and post-structuralism, critical theory in all of its forms are all schools of thought that are, um, whether you realize it or not, the underpinnings of much of the current discourse today. Certainly much of the social justice discourse, the racial justice discourse, um, they each contribute uh, to the philosophical underpinnings of the Black Lives Matter organization. And all of these things are chiefly concerned with the idea of power. Who has power? Who doesn't have power? Um, How is power gained and how is power maintained? What would a world with greater equalization of power distribution look like? Um, What are just forms and uses of power? Is power inherently evil? These are all questions that are being asked today. Power is an interesting thing to talk about um, in general and on an individual level. As individuals, we're, we're not always aware when we have it, but we're painfully aware when we don't. All of us experience power to varying degrees. We all experience power being in power over um, other people and we experience being in uh, other people being in power over us. So us under other people's power to varying degrees in many situations in our lives, we experience this. Um, all of us uh, are experience some form of the government being in power over us in America. Theoretically, the people give their power um, to the government to be in power over us through voting and things like that. Um, but we all experience it, uh, Certainly, um, when it comes to the IRS, we all experience the government being in power over us. Um, Another one that is really common is a boss-employee power relationship. Um, Maybe you're an employer, maybe you're an employee, but you experience that uh, someone is in power over you or you are in power over other people or both. Uh, Another common one is a teacher-student power relationship and with school... (laughs) coming back kind of and kids going back to school but that means staying at home and learning virtually teachers are trying to figure out how to maintain some sense of power in the best sense over their students and their development from afar um, which is something that i'm also trying to figure out not that i have power over you but just how the heck do we continue to learn and grow together not being physically together it's a weird problem to try to figure out um There's also the very common parent-child power relationship. So parents have power over their children while they um, are still developing and growing and living in their house. Um, I have to tell you, uh, that concept is a little bit foreign to me in my own experience of being a parent. (laughs) Uh, I have a toddler who is currently sleep regressing. 
So that certainly feels more like a child in power over the parent relationship. Also, my daughter is just so adorable and knows exactly what to do. She just has me wrapped around her finger. So she has all the power in our relationship. Oh, for better or for worse. Um, <laughs> so how are we to respond to power, both our power and the, the power of others? Tonight, we're jumping into the middle of the story of Joseph um, in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Uh, this is a story that at its worst has been used to universally teach that men and women can't trust each other. It's been used to promote the a stereotypical idea of the man of integrity versus the lustful, conniving woman. Um, it's a story that is certainly about integrity in the face of temptation, but I, I don't think that's what it is primarily about. I think primarily, and certainly for our purposes tonight, it's a story about how the posture of our hearts determines how we use our power. And that's really what I want us to hear tonight. The posture of our hearts determines how we use our power. That probably sounds really obvious. Um, but before we can talk about how we use our power, we have to talk about the underlying motivations of our heart. So with that being said, um, let's jump into our text for tonight. This is Genesis 39. And it's, uh, I'm going to read most of the chapter. So sit back and relax and just listen to this story. Now, Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, uh, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, uh, bought him, him being Joseph, from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of everything, in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went to the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave that you brought us came to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. 
Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, if you've spent maybe any time in church, certainly if you grew up in church, you probably heard that story um, at least once, if not dozens of times. But just so we're all on the same page, um, a little background here. Joseph uh, is the youngest of 12 brothers. We're actually not told if he has any sisters or how many sisters he might have, but he is the youngest of 12 brothers and he is the favorite of his father. And like every youngest son, uh, he really lived that up and, and <laughs> owned that he was his father's favorite and did I don't know if they're just not self-aware things or intentionally arrogant things, but he gets this reputation of being really arrogant and ignites his brother's jealousy against him. Um, their father famously loved Joseph so much that he made him a cloak of many colors, which musicals have been written about. And you can go look that up on your own time. Uh, but Joseph gets a real big head. He knows that he is the best. Eventually his brothers get so tired of his arrogance and so tired of their father loving him more than them that they plot to kill Joseph in the middle of their plot to kill him. They kind of change course and decide to just sell him into slavery instead and tell their dad that he's dead. So they go out at one point, they sell him into slavery. They come back home without him and they say, sorry, dad, he died. And I think they take his coat and, uh, kill some animal and like put the coat in blood. So it looks like Joseph's blood is all over the coat and they bring the coat back to him and say, uh, we added a color. Just kidding. Cause you know, his coat was many colors. They say, look, uh, sorry, your son died. Um, now a different one of us can be your favorite. I don't know. That was probably an awkward conversation, but anyway, that's kind of the first chapter of Joseph's life. He goes from being adored and the favorite youngest son at least from his father's perspective, to a slave. Super fun, right? Then our story picks up and Joseph is bought by a guy named Potiphar, um, who's high up in the Pharaoh's government. And Joseph works really hard and does a really good job for him and eventually becomes the head of Potiphar's house. But he's still a foreigner and he's still a slave. So, uh, all this power that Joseph now has is inherited power. It's power given to him by his master. How he uses this power, which we'll come back to, is very different from Potiphar's wife. Now, Potiphar's wife, you may be thinking, this is a woman in an ancient culture, so she has no power. She's essentially property, just like Joseph, right? That's what I thought too, as I began researching this talk especially since unlike the men in this story, she isn't even given a name. She's just known as Potiphar's wife. But it turns out that's totally wrong. First of all, in ancient Egypt, knowing someone's name meant that you had power over them. Oftentimes people, uh, people's parents were the only ones who knew their name because their parents are the ones that named them at birth. Using someone's name, their real name, um, was an act of asserting power over them. So much so that it was literally like a national secret. Uh, what a Pharaoh's real name was, was a national secret. Like almost no one knew it. 
uh, pharaohs always chose fake names to use publicly so that their real names weren't used to take their power away. So the fact that Joseph and Potiphar are both named, but Potiphar's wife isn't, is actually a sign of respect and honor and deference to her. I think this idea is, is enhanced and furthered when you realize that women are named all over the place in the Old Testament, even in uh, other stories in the same book of Genesis. The women in Hebrew uh, culture weren't equal with men. They're still named in their stories. So not naming Potiphar's wife isn't a knock on her, um, necessarily. And in Egyptian culture, not naming her is a sign of respect. Secondly, this is super interesting. Ancient Egypt was actually incredibly progressive when it came to gender equality, which is like so fascinating. Um, I came across this historian named uh, James C. Thompson, who wears a bow tie. So you know that he knows what he's talking about. And he writes, um, while women could become Pharaoh, uh, only in special circumstances, they were otherwise regarded as totally equal to men as far as the law was concerned. They could own property, they could borrow money, they could sign contracts, they could initiate divorce, they could appear in court as a witness, etc. Of course, they were also equally subject to whatever responsibilities normally accompanied those rights. Um, so women were just as seen as equals with men and could even become Pharaoh, the highest ruler in the land, although that only happened, I think, a few times. Um, it was basically equal. So Potiphar's wife has tons of inherent power, power that derives from who she is. She is a native Egyptian. She is a citizen. She is rich. She is part of the government. And she uses this power to try to get what she wants. Now, as I said before, I think it's far too simplistic uh, to think of this story as primarily about sexual desire. I think we unlock much more of what's going on in this story when we try to see things from Potiphar's wife's perspective in the context of her day. Other than what I've already pointed out, there are two key details that make this whole scene come to life a bit more. Um, first is a subtle detail that we're told in verse six that says, so Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, this is important, again, uh, because, again, according to Thompson, um, unlike many ancient cultures where marriage was primarily done out of a sense of duty and almost always for political reasons, ancient Egyptian men and women um, valued and enjoyed each other's company. And love and emotional support were, were considered to be an important part of marriage, more so than duty or political reasons, um, which is much more similar to our culture today. Um, on top of that, or given that information, Potiphar's main concern, we're told, when he's home, isn't his wife, it isn't his family, it's what he's going to eat that's interesting. It's not a stretch to surmise that he isn't very attentive to or concerned about his wife if the chief thing on his mind is what am I going to eat today? Especially since he's rich. So it's not like he he's asking what am I going to eat today as in like how am I going to eat today? But like how am I going to entertain myself today? This idea is heightened by another bit of information that we get from verse 8. Uh, when Joseph says, with me in charge, 
My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. Hmm. Again, according to Thompson, um, there's little doubt that in Egypt, uh, as in the rest of the ancient world, the man was expected to be the head of the family. But uh, popular wisdom of the day in Egypt urged husbands to avoid interfering in household matters and trust their wives to do the job properly. There was certainly enough work for everyone, as there were no TV dinners and food had to be prepared from scratch. In fact, if you wanted a loaf of bread, you would even have to grind the grain yourself. Um, you might buy sandals, but most other articles of clothing were made in the home. Those who could afford it, like in our story, had servants and slaves to do the actual work. Um, but the mistress of the house would still be expected to supervise and to see that everything was done properly. So what's wrong with our story then? Joseph has taken the place in this house that is the rightful place of Potiphar's wife. He is above her, even though this is her house. So not only does Potiphar not really pay attention to his wife, he also clearly doesn't trust her. And in fact, he trusts her so little that he appoints a foreign slave to her position instead of her. Wow. That's a, this, this is a deeply insulting gesture that communicates that she's insignificant and, and incompetent. And it heaps tons of shame on her. One of those things would be enough for someone to crack being in a relationship and being constantly ignored by that person is basically just constantly hearing that you're not significant. Or um, having your purpose and your sense of identity taken away and given to someone else, especially someone else who in your eyes is less worthy of it, um, is, is communicating to that person that you're not competent, you're not good enough. Either one of those are, are damaging and difficult to navigate, but, but, both of those things happening at the same time from your husband, that, that's rough. And so on my mind, it's easy to see why Potiphar's wife might've acted the way that she did. On top of that, we're told that Joseph is hot. <laughs> and not only was he hot, he did his job really well. So he was probably really nice to her and probably very respectful of her. And he was probably more attentive to her than her own husband was. And so she's had enough of it. So she tries to use her power to get what she wants. The posture of Pharaoh's wife's heart is, what am I missing and how do I get it? What am I missing and how do I get it? And Joseph becomes a means to an end to answer that question. It's actually the answer to both of her problems. If he agrees to her proposition and starts up a sexual relationship with her, she gets some of the intimacy or at least attention that she's been wanting that anyone wants in a marriage relationship. If not, if he doesn't agree, then she gets to do what she ends up doing, which is stick it to her husband for taking away her rightful position and giving it to a foreign slave and at the same time getting rid of Joseph so that she gets that position back. The posture of her heart is pretty obvious um, from the way that she tells the story uh, of what happened to her husband. She blames Potiphar and appeals to the inherent power that she should hold over Joseph's inherited power. 
in verse 17, she says, that Hebrew slave that you brought came to me to make sport of me. That Hebrew, that foreigner, that slave, that piece of property that you, it's your fault, brought, made all this happen. And <laughs> it's pretty clear from what happens after this that, that Potiphar didn't necessarily believe his wife. It says he burned with anger, but he doesn't, it doesn't say it was towards Joseph. That's certainly implied. But if he really truly believed what his wife was telling him, Joseph would have been killed on the spot or at least castrated. Instead, neither of those things happen, and he's thrown in prison. But this is the nice prison. We're told it's the king's prison. This is like where the Wall Street execs go when they get caught doing something wrong. It's basically a resort. It's still a prison, but at least he has his life and all of his parts still intact. And actually, Potiphar throwing him in prison protected Joseph from Potiphar's wife because as an equal citizen, she could have had him killed or castrated. But now that he's in jail and out of the picture, she seems to be satisfied, um, which further reveals that it further reveals what she was really after, which was just getting her power back. So Potiphar's wife's stance is, what am I missing and how do I get it? Contrast that with Joseph throughout this story. He's sold into slavery by his brothers. He works hard and does what he can to bless his master who buys him as a piece of property. He refuses to betray his master and his master's wife, quite, quite frankly, and gets thrown into prison for it. The text, uh, the rest of this chapter, chapter 39, concludes by telling us how things go for Joseph in prison. And we see that he just keeps doing the same things there. Uh, it says, while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. <laughs> so it's just like a repeat of what happened in Potiphar's house. Joseph is so awesome that he's put in charge of the prison that he is a prisoner in, which is like a huge conflict of interest. But I mean, what else would you expect from the prison that's basically just a resort where the Wall Street executives go? So Joseph's posture is basically sell me into slavery. That's fine. The people that buy me are going to be better for it. Throw me in prison. That's fine. The prison, everyone else there, the other prisoners, um, everyone, including the warden, the guy that's supposed to run it, are going to be better because I'm there. Joseph is continually treated unfairly. He's continually beat down. Yet this is his outlook. No matter where I find myself, the lives of the people there will be better with me there. How is this possible? Like, why does he, why is this his default? I think this is all a result of um, the posture of Joseph's heart, which is what do I have and how can I share it? Potiphar's wife's posture is what am I missing and how do I get it? Joseph's is what do I have and how can I share it? I don't think it's a stretch to assume that this was instilled into Joseph throughout his life growing up because Joseph's great grandfather was a guy named Abraham, who was the first guy that God promised um, that he and his descendants would be the means through which God would bless the entire world. 
So Joseph's great-grandfather was the first person to hear the mind-blowing and world-changing idea that he and his people were going to be blessed by God so that they could be a blessing to the rest of the world. Joseph would have grown up hearing that over and over and over again. We are blessed to be a blessing to the rest of the world. Our purpose is to bless everyone we come in contact with. And we clearly see that in his posture. So we have two diametrically opposed postures of the heart. What am I missing and how do I get it? And what do I have and how do I share it? What am I missing and how do I get it is shaky ground to build your life on. It's shifting sands that constantly change anytime you happen to get what you thought you were missing. And as soon as you do, you realize that there's something else that is missing and you chase after that. It's an endless and exhausting way to live and... It reduces people to means for your ends, which is certainly what we saw happen with Potiphar's wife. But the opposite posture, what do I have and how can I share it, is solid ground. To me, this is an incredibly compelling and life-giving way to live uh, because the context of your life can change dramatically, but the posture of your heart doesn't. It doesn't matter if you're the favorite child of a wealthy farmer or a slave or a prisoner or in charge of an empire, which is if you continually continue reading the story of Joseph, that's the position that he eventually is given. Pharaoh essentially puts him in charge of the entire Egyptian empire. Um, But that's another story for another day. The point isn't what position you find yourself in or how you got there. Even the point is no matter your position, you can always be focused on what you have and how you can use that to bless others. And it allows the people in your life to remain people and not means uh, to ends of your own desire. Why does this matter for us? Because the posture of our hearts determines how we use our power. Our culture, uh, for better or for worse, uh, I'm not trying to make a judgment statement, but just an objective statement. Our culture right now is, is obsessed with power. Who has it? Who doesn't? How is power used to keep some powerless while making others even more powerful? In its best form, I think our culture uh, right now is, is laser focused on greater equal, equalization of the distribution of power, which is a good and noble pursuit. Unbalanced and unchecked power is prone to incredible depths of corruption and destruction and depravity. But I think um, maybe a more important question for us or at least a more important question to be layered on top of uh, these other questions for us um, as followers of Jesus is what is the posture of my heart and how do I use the power I have? Our culture is, is drowning in false messages that you're lacking something. And if you could just get that thing, you'd be fulfilled the means justifying the ends is becoming more and more an accepted outlook Um, and fulfillment of personal desire is seen as the highest good. I'm not even talking about a justice standpoint now. I'm just talking about the consumerism of our culture largely points us to a posture of what am I missing and how can I get it? The call to Abraham, the call to Joseph's great grandfather, um, which is the same call to those of us who follow Jesus today stands in stark contrast to these things. We are blessed by God to bless the world around us. What do I have and how can I share it? 
regardless of whether those people around us deserve it or not. Using the gifts and resources I have, how can I join God to reduce suffering and increase joy for the people in my life? My family, my friends, my neighbors, my coworkers, my community. A few questions uh, for you to reflect on if you would like to. These are questions that I found myself faced with um, and continue to (laughs) delve into are these. Uh, How do you use the power that you have? Can you think of a few examples of you using what, what power you have? All of us have power to some degree. What do the ways you use your power reveal about the posture of your heart? And finally, if you don't like what you see in those first two questions, what are you going to do about it? The posture of our hearts determines how we use our power. And the posture that we're called to is what do I have and how can I share it? How can I join God to reduce suffering and increase joy for my family, for my friends, for my neighbors? for all the people that I come in contact with in my life.